I'm Kevin Rogers, the host of Sidewalk Skyline Podcast. And we've been to some interesting places in Canada, talking to people that have fascinating lives serving Jesus in the streets of our city. Our guest today, Dr. Michael Krauss, has a broad range of ministerial experience in an urban context in churches, social service agencies, and educational institutions. He was the director of Evergreen Young Street Missions Outreach to Street-Involved Youth in Toronto, supervising 20 staff, overseeing a thriving menu of programs, including health care, housing support, employment training, drop-in and meal programs, and a broad range of advocacy support. He was the youth pastor at Flemington Park Church, the assistant pastor at Stone Church, and the senior pastor at Church on the Street, an experimental church reaching out to street youth in the urban core. He's been active as a church planter in other contexts, pioneering Hills Church, an innovative house church network based in Thornhill. Before joining the faculty of Tyndale University in 2014, he functioned as the staff care director at Young Street Mission, where he provided leadership development, ministry coaching, and counseling to staff members working with the urban poor. He has been teaching courses with the TIM Center Diploma Program since its inception in 2010. He also has a private practice as a leadership coach and church consultant. Michael is ordained with the Pentecostal uh, Assemblies of Canada. Well, I can't think of uh, uh, an urban elder with uh, more wisdom to to give us than Michael Krause. And uh, this is a recording that was made at the Our City Conference in Toronto in 2019. And in this session, he shares principles of longevity. How do you prepare and maintain a ministry life for the long haul? Let's go to that session now. I'm not going to focus in on a lot of the negative stuff, but hopefully some things that you can do and some practices that you can have that will lead you forward. Fundamentally, it's grounded in our, our createdness, our, the fact that we've been created in God's image, that God loves us, that we are the beloved of God, and that uh, foundationally all of that stuff starts there and finishes there. That um, the good works that he's created for us to do are good works that are done in Christ Jesus, right? That, and again, this whole process that, that says God surprises us sometimes in, in how effective he is in our circumstances and sometimes in spite of us. And so that's where I want to start and just create the focus that God is the one who is at work in us. So kind of the six things I kind of want to look at. It's not all about self-care. I think there's a lot of kind of perspective work for me that helps me sustain long-term ministry. It's not just about taking care of myself. It's also how I look at myself, how I look at the ministry around me, how I look at the, the people that I work with. And so this, these six areas, we can stop and, and spend some more time on some others. I'm going to spend a, a little bit of time on the calling. Um, so I'll start with why, why, is long-term, why is the long haul a good thing, right? Why should we be in it for the long haul? Uh, some talk about calling, vision, um, the support system that we need to have, some self-care. And uh, 
this importance of, of reinventing ourselves as we move forward in ministry. And actually, that's what Karen said this morning, just the, these conversions that she's had over the years. I think that that's, that's a fundamental aspect for, for being in ministry in the long haul. So why the long haul? Just kind of an introduction. A couple of things that happen when we're doing this for the long haul. It creates stability with an unstable population. And so I worked with street kids. Uh, I outlasted most of them because I stayed there for 10 years. And so the other thing that really helped is that I did my placement at Young Street Mission when I was in seminary. And so that was in the... Uh, if I start telling you the years, you'll know exactly how old I am. And just admit, I'm an old white guy, okay? So um, I started... Uh, I went to seminary in the, in the early 80s. And my first year of seminary, I volunteered at Young Street Mission as, as my placement. Um, the interesting thing is that when I was in university, which is the late 70s, um, I also volunteered at the drop-in uh, at Evergreen. This is before it was what it is today. Um, and if any of you remember, that was, it has this old green sign on the front, and I, I volunteered there. And so street kids, when I, when I first started, street kids would come up to me and say, you have no credibility to work on the street. Uh, because we've been here longer than you. And then I would say, well, were you in, here in 1982? They would say, um, no. I said, were you here in 1976? And they would say, no. I said, well, I was. So the long haul actually creates credibility with a population that's slow to trust you, right? And so it gave me uh, the kind of the long-term... Um, I'm not saying that you should volunteer at all these places before you start. Sometimes that helps, though. Uh, the, the long haul really ha gave me some credibility with a population that was difficult to work with. And it created a stability for them because they knew I was there and they knew I would be there. And so I saw probably four generations, not, not physical generations, but generations of kids who moved through the drop-in. You know, in terms of when we see them, they kind of stabilize, they... They get attached to the street, and then we kind of go through a process of helping them move off the street. And that usually took sometimes between two and three years. And so in my time there, I saw three or four generations of, of, of this cycle that we went through. And it created a lot of stability and a, ability to predict some of the things that would happen there. Um, the other second, you outlast, outlast your detractors. The people who really don't like you tend to leave before you do, so... Um, <laughs> Which is, which is a good thing. Um, you out-experience your skeptics. Uh, again, what happens is that as you're there longer, you gain a level of competence and experience that comes just from seeing lots of different scenarios. Um, and I think the fourth, this last one is, is the most important one, is that you force yourself to grow. You go past the honeymoon stage of just like, oh, everybody likes you, you like everybody else. Um, and then you, you also go past your what we've called in ministry, your bag of tricks, right? You've used everything that you know. Um, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. And then you get to the end of your bag of tricks. There's no more things that you learned in Bible college or seminary or university or wherever you were that will now give you the, the equipment to say, oh, I can just pull this out and do it. Now you have to kind of contextualize. You have to say, these things didn't work or, or they worked marginally. What, what's the next thing I have to do? So in youth ministry, often that's when a youth pastor resigns and says, I feel a call to go somewhere else. 
Um, and when we ask our students at, at Tyndale to find uh, ministry mentors, we always say, find somebody who's been in the church that they've been at or the ministry that they've been at for at least seven years. Because seven years is that, that kind of period where all of the possible things that you could have done, you did do, and now you have to kind of work through this next phase in ministry. And so just the recognition that long haul requires you to reinvent yourself and that uh, staying in it for the long haul means that you are forced to grow, is that you have to find places where, where new things come and a new cycle of ministry starts and a different way of thinking about ministry starts. And, uh, and again, like I said, you get rid of the honeymoon. So, and again, talk and stop anytime. I, all the questions at the end, you can do that too, but uh, I think it's a little bit more focused if you can um, ask as, as we go along. That's just number one. Two, calling, I think fundamentally for me is, is of utmost importance. I love these two quotes by Frederick Buchner. Uh, one of them's fairly uh, well-known, but I like the first one. The original shimmering self gets buried so deep that most of us end up hardly living out, out of it at all. Instead, we live out of all the other selves, which we are constantly putting on and taking off, like coats and hats against the world's weather. So the first quote really is about saying, who, who are you? Uh, who has God made you to be? And referencing back to the uh, Ephesians quote, God has made us for a purpose uh, to do good works. So who are you? I think when, once you find out who you are, and instead of kind of hiding behind your disguises, um, I think you're able to then uh, discover the impact of your ministry and, and the effectiveness in a better way. The way I say it often is, what does it look like to be comfortable in your own skin? What does it look like for you to be you in the place that God has called you? Um, and that's really where deep effectiveness starts, and I think life is a given as well. And so that's that second comment. The place God calls you is the place where your deep gladness and the world's deep hunger meet. And so the, the gladness piece is a self-awareness piece. What makes me glad? What makes me deeply joyful in, in a circumstance? Um, this is kind of done uh, graphically like this, that, you know, what does the world need? Uh, and this isn't mine. It's, that's the, the website where you can find it, this as well. What does the world need and what do you love or what makes you glad? Right, and the intersection of that is, uh, as Buchner says, this place of calling or mission. You know, where's God calling me? Um, but there are other aspects to this. It's not just about what I love. It's not just about what the, the world around me needs. Um, how about some of the practical things? Uh, you know, like, what am I good at? <laughs> right, okay, I might love it. Like, I, I've had, as a pastor, I've had too many people come up to me, oh, God has called me to worship ministry. And I'm thinking, well, could you sing a few bars for me? And uh, it's like, please stop singing a few bars. <laughs> or can you play an instrument? No, but I really want to be, the, I want, you know, you're not good at it. And so, um, <laughs> and sometimes we're too kind to say that, and we have to suffer the consequences. My favorite worship story. My wife, again, was, uh, is a music minister. She was uh, the music pastor, the worship pastor at Agent Court Pentecostal Church, uh, and while they still had a choir there. 
And so if you know Stu Mulligan, who's just actually just passed away a few, few weeks ago, uh, he was the pastor at the time, and he said, okay, um, you're hired, and the first job that you have is that there's a woman in the choir that nobody likes, and, um, and you need to do something about it. And so she says, well, what is it? She said, he, he said to her, you'll find out. So she went in there, and she started talking with the choir members and all of that kind of stuff, and this, this woman had uh, nasty body odor. And, and nobody wanted to stand next to her in the choir. Um, and so she said, I, I don't know what to do about it. And so she thought, how do I, how do I deal with this? How do I address this, this issue? And uh, so she did um, auditions for every per single person in the choir. Um, not, not just to deal with that problem. <laughs> that would be a lot of work, but also to find out the other people. But so she went through that process and then said, you know, can you sing? She just did something simple, Amazing Grace. Can you sing Amazing Grace? And so she, she sang it, but at a monotone. She thought she was singing alto, and she just sang it low in a monotone. She says, can, now, can you follow me? She went, la, 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 and she couldn't do that. Um, couldn't read notes and that kind of stuff. And so she said, you know what? I don't think this is your ministry. You can't really sing. Um, she got upset. She left the church, actually. Um, two months later, she got a call from the music director at Queensway and said, do you know this woman? <laughs> he said, she's in my choir. How did you get rid of her? <laughs> uh, anyways, all of that to say, sometimes... You need to identify people's gifts and abilities, especially your own, and be honest about it. But then there's, there's this practical thing, like, what earns me money, right? What, can I survive doing this? And I think one of the biggest pressures for us when we're working with marginalized populations is that the organizations we work with have money difficult. Well, even if they manage money well, it's hard to raise money. It's a lot of work to raise money. It's a lot, you know, it's a, it's a tight market. It's, it's, it's not sexy anymore in terms of fundraising ability. And so we, we're working with uh, organizations who are often stretched to the, the very end. And so sometimes the thing that you love, that you're good at, and that the world needs doesn't pay you anything. And so what does that feel like? And so we have to at least identify the fact that this is an issue. And all of these things have intersections, and so we'll just kind of look at where those things. So what you love and what earns you money, that's just a good job, right? You can, you're doing what you love and you're making money at it. Um, what you're good at and what earns you money is maybe your profession, is that, uh, you know, you're trained for this uh, and you can do it well. Uh, what you're good at and what you love is your passion. Um, what, uh, what the world needs and what earns you money is maybe your funding source. And uh, again, bivocational ministry is much more common now, even than when I was growing up, both within the church, within uh, ministries. I mean, EJ's experiencing that as he's planting a church and doing a number of other things and fundraising and trying to work a little bit, and, and then your spouse works and provides. So you, you have a num uh, multiple income streams. So what's your income stream, your funding source? Sometimes what the world needs and what you're good at is that's just you're going to volunteer. That's your contribution to the world, right? So there's some things that, that happen there. 
what you're good at, what you love, and what earns you money is your opportunity to serve. It gives you a, a chance to, to give away. But on the other side, uh, if you're not good at it, the world needs it, you love it, and it makes you money. It's an opportunity to grow in your build, uh, skills and your ability, right? So maybe you can grow into that area to become better at it. Now, the center section is kind of that sweet spot. Um, this website here calls this, uh, uses a Japanese word called iki, ikigai. If anybody's Japanese can pronounce that a bit better. Um, it's like this kind of dream job, your, your, the thing that kind of, where all the different pieces come together. Um, kind of this sense of calling and uh, all of those things are there. It, it supplies the need that you have um, and you love it and the world needs it and you're good at it. So often what we find is that we find these three, what you're good at, what the world needs and what you love, and, but it doesn't pay you. And that's a place of struggle and difficulty sometimes. And I've been there. I know some of you have been there. Um, and then this piece where maybe you don't love it, but you're good at it and the world needs it. And it actually pays, pays but it's like it doesn't deeply satisfy. So maybe you're looking for the thing that satisfies. Maybe you have to shift over or change your, your piece. Anyways, all of this is kind of to help us throw some of the elements of call into what, what we're looking at. Um, there's a bit more to that stuff as, as well. Um, this uh, Buchner quote again, I'm just putting up there because I, I like him and he's a, he's a quote machine. Um, what we hunger for perhaps more than anything else is to be known in our full humanness and yet that's often what we also fear more than anything else. It's important to tell at least from time to time the secret of who we truly, truly and fully are. Because otherwise we run the risk of losing track of who we truly and fully are and little by little come to accept instead the highly edited version which we put forth in the hope that the world will find it more acceptable than the real thing. It's important to tell our secrets too because it makes it easier for other people to tell us a secret or two of their own. And so this idea, again, of being comfortable in your own skin, just sensing the call that God has on your life uh, and uh, how those things work together in terms of the work that you do is fundamentally important. So as we look at the, the call piece in here, you know, there's the call, which I think is a bigger picture, and then the mission, which is more of a specific thing. I'll give you an example of that in just a sec. Um, so... Your call is this thing that God is calling you to do in terms of, of, of your ministry. I used to think that my call was, was pastoring, that God had called me to pastor people. Um, as I kind of discerned it a bit more and went to different places and different uh, ministry opportunities, I recognized that my call is really actually to, to identify the gifts and abilities of other people and to re release them into their gifts. And that I, I did that as a pastor. I did that as uh, a church planter. I did that working at Evergreen. And I also did that, now, I do that now at Tyndale. And all of those things kind of come together. And so my call uh, spanned every kind of ministry opportunity that I had, every different thing that I did, even, even the jobs that I did. My call kind of spanned all of those things. The specific mission, though, I think is a little more short-term. It's, it's more specific for time, period. For, so for right, right now, my mission really is to, um, 
is to do the, the call piece, identify people's gifts and abilities and release them, but also to do it in a context that allows them to see, uh, to, to see their, their abilities actually expressed in a, a very specific world. So I want them to understand the world they're in. And so uh, what I see my mission right now is yeah, equipping, releasing people into the world that they, they know. And so my, my task is to help them teach, help to teach them what's, what's my context, what's my world? How does what I have fit into that place? Um, and so I see that that's uh, kind of more the specifics that I'm, I'm looking at. But the questions about call are, you know, is it big enough? Are you positioned to make it happen? Um, and are you really passionate about it? And I think sometimes the, the call needs to answer all of those things. You know, is it big enough? Is it kind of capture you? Because I know the difficulties of, of ministry. Um, as I spend time at Young Street Mission, there are times where I question my call. Am, am I doing it? Because we, we got, not only was it a, a population that was difficult to work with, there was also this pushback of other agencies. We had individuals who came and basically tried to shut us down at Evergreen. We had individually, individuals who accused individual staff members of um, all kinds of crimes, uh, you know, sexual misconduct, ethical uh, things that weren't true, all in order to discredit us. Uh, we had times where we faced violence and um, just real difficulties. We had times where we were short-staffed, and it was sort of like, you know, this, and, and like EJ says, the, those Jeremiah moments where, you know, God, did you call me to work with people who will never change? Right, this that kind of question that said, "Am I effective in what I'm doing?" And so, those things are are at at those moments. That's when the call comes. So it has to be big enough and sustain you enough to bring you through that. The call that I had to Evergreen had had to be that specific and clear for me. I was working here at Stone Church. Um, I was actually on an advisory board for church. Uh, on the street, which was operating out of Evergreen. And so what we did is, is there were five churches that supported uh, the church at, uh, at, on the street at, at Evergreen, and each of those churches sent a kind of an advisory person to sit on a board that would help them kind of give stability because the, uh, the people uh, that they were working with, it was hard to find people stable enough to kind of come into leadership, sit at the board level, and so they wanted some outside support and help. Bill Ryan, who is going to do the vigil tonight, was the pastor at that time. He was, he was the pastor of Church on the Street, and I was, I was the youth and young adult pastor here. And so we knew each other fairly well. Um, and so I remember one night in October of 1990, I went uh, to one of our meetings, our advisory meetings. It was at the building on Young Street. It's just the storefront, just the, the bricks on the front right now because they've torn everything else down behind it. Um, but in that upper room that was there, we had our meet, advisory committee meeting. Uh, Rick Tobias, who was the director of Young Street Mission, and uh, Bill Ryan was there. Um, and Bill was celebrating his fifth anniversary. He said, I'm just, just coming up. At Christmas time will be my fifth, five years, and I've just, I made a five-year commitment when I started. And he says, I love what I'm doing. He says, I, I just want, I'm just so eager. 
I'm ready to make another five-year commitment, but I'm going to take these next two months or so to discern my future. And so he's talking about this, and he's telling us all the stories of the amazing things that were happening with the, the church there. Um, and as he's telling his story, this thought pops into the back of my mind that just said, Mike, why don't you do that? I'm thinking, God, if this is you, you're not listening to Bill. Because <laughs> Bill just said how much he loves this and that he never wants to go anywhere else and that this is such an amazing thing that's, that's happening in his life. Um, and it was just like this, this, yeah, yeah, but you should do this. And it was nothing, it wasn't shining lights, it was nothing, it was just this thought at the back of my head that said, why don't you do this? And I thought, okay, that's fine, I've heard this before, it's, you know, I could do different things, I, yeah, I could do this, but yeah, so what? I go home, uh, I remember thinking about it. it just wouldn't leave me. I kept thinking about it. What, what would happen if you actually did this? I remember very specific, it's a, it's a very clear image in my mind. I'm sitting on my roof cleaning out my eaves troughs at my house in Don Mills. I'm cleaning out my eaves troughs and I'm thinking, what would it be like to work with street kids? And, uh, you know, would I bring them here to my house? And, you know, I'm, I, it just doesn't leave me. Um, and it, this goes on for a couple of months, and so uh, I, I book, we, Bill and I had actually booked a, a lunch appointment in December, and we meet together for lunch, uh, unrelated to this, and so I say to him, okay, Bill, this is crazy, this is what I'm thinking, um, and I told him the story, and he says to me, well, thank you for telling me that because the night that I shared that story, Rick Tobias came to me and he said, I would like you to run the community center, which is another division of Young Street Mission. He says, so right after that meeting is when he said, I want you to consider leaving Church on the Street and move into this new role that I have for you at the mission. And I said, okay, well, that's interesting. The timing of that because that, that was a unique thing. And the fact that it never left me, and the fact that, that Bill had received a job offer the same night, you know, 20 minutes later, basically, uh, was this deep, deep sense of confirmation that God had said, this is where you're supposed to be. And that deep sense of confirmation sustained me through every difficult circumstance. So we had, we had staff who resigned because... Of, of the leadership that was there, not, my, not mine. Uh, we had staff who um, got into uh, ethical issues. They, they actually, um, we had a staff member who, who slept with a street kid. We had a staff member who, who defrauded the mission. We had, we had a number of things happen during the tenure that I was there, and I had to deal with all of those. I don't know if you've ever fired anybody. It's, it's one of the worst things that could happen. But that sense of call and the accusations that came against us and our, our staff, and uh, some of them justified, um, sustained me through those, those seasons of just being uh, really discouraged and also um, often being uh, busy with, with all of the stuff that was required there. And so I just wanted to emphasize, what's your call? You know, what has God called you to do? What's, what's he put onto your heart? What has he made you for? 
And that, that sense of calling and being created in God's image for a specific purpose has, uh, will sustain you through difficult, overworking situations, oppressive situations, uh, brick walls that you have to run through. Uh, why? Because God said, I, this is what I made you for. It will not always be fun, um, and sometimes it won't be fulfilling, but in the short term, but it will in the long. And I look back on those years, and I have a deep, deep sense of the fact that God used those things both to minister to the street youth that were there, but deeply to impact me, to change me, to conform me into his image in ways that I would have never seen happen if I'd kind of been on the, the, the youth pastor, associate pastor, senior pastor path that I might have taken if I'd stayed here at Young Street, uh, sorry, here at Stone Church or at another church. And so I see that as, as being so significant for us. So... I'll go to the next. So one of the ways to help you in terms of discerning call is to keep what uh, I call a call journal. This, isn't, this is something that uh, Don Gertz developed, who's, who's one of the other faculty members at, at Tyndale. And Don was the pastor at Walmer Road, which is just down the street, for many years. Uh, and using some of that, that information, uh, I share it with my students as well. What I would challenge you to do, even no matter where you are in your journey, is to keep a journal uh, at a specific place that might be online, it might be in your computer, it might be on your phone, but it might be a physical journal that you just say, you know, every time you have a sense that God is saying something to be you about your future, about where he wants you to be, about who you are, write it down. So if, if, you're, if some things have happened in the past, write them down and fill them in as much as you can with what you remember about it. So even if, if something has happened in the past. Um, if you have something that confirms those words. So, so for me, back to my story, it was that, that nudge. It was the, the, the fact that it never left me. I put those things down. It was that lunch communication. And then it took me actually six months to decide to say yes. Um, uh, that process was, was going through there. And, you know, put all those things down because it confirms those things. But include times where you question your call, right? Because the questioning of the call actually uh, aligns it and refines it to what God has for you. And so even when you have challenges, how you responded to them, put that in the journal too because that'll help you. That'll encourage you as you go as you go further. And so, again, keep, keep journaling that. Keep that in a separate place. It might be, like I said, maybe today it's easier to do as a, as a file in your computer or something. But um, as that gets refined and, and kind of boiled down, try to describe your call in a sentence. Um, and just kind of what I did just a, a little bit earlier. Can you describe it? What I like to say is, can you describe your call in a tweet? Um, and if you can, then, then you've probably got it down to a level that, that is, is able to be communicated well. So try to communicate it in a tweet that you would have had to tweet uh, five years ago, 140 characters. 
right? You, you can go a little longer now. But 140 characters, can you do that? Which really means basically a sentence or two at the most. And so if you can do that, what that does is it simplifies it and it brings it down into a repeatable, memorable uh, kind of uh, statement that you can use over and over again to, to just say, is this, am I lining up? Am I in the right place? Does this work? Does this fit? And I, I had a fairly clear sense early on in my ministry that that's what I was doing. Um, but I, I, it, it took a while to articulate it. Right? So, so the, the direction is there, but the specifics uh, become a little bit more clearly clear as you go. And then you can then apply that, the principle of your call to the different jobs that you might do. Or, so the first person who did that was my dad. And the reason that I, I mention him in particular is because when I was growing up and when I became a Christian, although he had Christian background and had, had be, was a Christian himself, he, he kind of ridiculed my passion for God a little bit. And so I remember finishing university, wondering where to go, um, and he kind of confirmed my call to seminary because we were sitting at the kitchen table one night we're talking about, you know, what I was thinking was, he, you know, and what he wanted for me. And, and he said, I, what I thought out of the blue, uh, you know what, you'd be a good pastor. You should go and, and to seminary or Bible school. <laughs> and so to me, that was like, that was uncharacteristic of, of the direction of our conversations. Uh, and number two, it had a deep resonance in, in my own heart. And so, yes, I mean, so something specific is that often unexpected words of confirmation. I think sometimes it's like somebody comes up to us and kind of pats us on the back and you, we, we just say, oh, yeah, he does that to everybody. Or, or, you know, and so it's not serious. But there are times where there's this connection from the person to person that just resonates. And um, so, yes, absolutely. And I want to switch that around too. I would say all of us who are in ministry, especially with marginalized people, um, I think God calls us to speak those words to them, right? So the speaking of words of direction, of confirmation, of identifying gifts, they are words of affirmation, they are words of encouragement, they are words where you're identifying something specific in their lives that they're doing well, is, is a confirming uh, conversation with them. And I've had students come back to me, uh, even when I, I didn't know I said it. And they said, remember when you did this and when you said that? I'm thinking, no, I don't. But he said, well, you did that. And this was so significant to me. Um, actually, you did that this morning, right? When you were talking about um, uh, uh, Kevin, his, his response to you, right? So his response to you was, was a word of encouragement and, and acceptance and welcome, right? That said, I know, I see you, Right? And so those words are really significant, and they stay with us a long time. And so I think in, in ministry, that's one of our most important call, callings or, or jobs as we're working with people. I think it has a prophetic edge. I, don't, I wouldn't equate it. Like, like we, have, we have the spiritual gift of encouragement, right? And so there's a, a, an encouraging word that I think all of us are called to do. I think sometimes it does. It might step over into that prophetic realm, and I've seen it happen in my life and other people's lives too. But, but um, whether or not we have any inkling of, of a prophetic gift, I think we all have 
the call to be encouragers, right, and, and exhorters and, and incur, uh, you know, helping people identify their gifts and abilities. Um, but I think, yeah, you're right, sometimes it, it moves into that as well. So there are a couple of, uh, you know, I, I won't go into all of this, but as we call, you know, our identity comes from a family of origin, and I'm going to look at this, do a diagram for you. Our skill, our ability, um, our talents, and our personality. And I put together this little um, piece that I hope will help be helpful for you. So, there's God. Because <laughs> uh, it all starts with God, right? And so God has created us as this unique person um, and, you know, placed us in a family of origin, uh, parents, brothers, sisters, uncles, aunts, who influence our, our interaction, our growth. This creative, you know, from our genes and from our family, uh, this created me. This is nature, uh, our inherited traits, etc. But there's also this nurture aspect, right? This upbringing, our environment, our talent, our experiences, our training, even trauma, right? Difficult circumstances, the relationships that we have, kind of our preferences that can be measured by, you know, doing some different uh, psychometric tests, the values that have been established through our family. You know, these things kind of create our personality, which then brings us into what I call the formed me, right? Um, so these, this combination of nurture and nature, uh, as we grow up, we, we develop a, a unique uh, identity as, as who we are. Um, and, you know, there are different options of, of where we go with that. The, these, those options are, I think, then transformed and sublimated to the work that God does in our life through uh, an encounter with him, a salvation experience or a process whereby we become the transformed me, right? this, this person that God has made new. He's used all of these things. Interesting that, that these things all still fit into who we've made. And even when we call it new, it's, it's more like renewed, right? So the things that we were born with, our character, our personality, our, um, you know, they are still there, but they are transformed into who God is calling us to be. This transform me then also has uh, a purpose, a destiny. And so where does that go? And, and this process of calling um, to our purpose, you know, also has lots of options, even at this stage. You know, where could we go? There, there are lots of different things that you could do with the unique gifts and, and abilities that you have. Um, but... But what God really does is he pulls all of these things together and gives us a direction that he says, okay, I know your family. I know how I created you. Um, I know your environment. I know your abilities. I know your personality. I know how you've kind of been put together in your mother's womb and, and then as you've grown. And I know all of, all of these things, and they all align into a particular direction that God has for us. Um, that really is our calling journey, right? It's, it's this thing that has pulled us from one step to another that for us sometimes it doesn't make sense, but for God it does. And so these things kind of direct us to our vocational me, which again is this, this, the, this word for call is often used as vocation, but also we use this vocation as a, as a job, right? As a, a thing that we're doing in our life that fulfills 
God's calling in our lives that expresses our personality and our abilities and our talents, um, that leads us towards our, our destiny, our purpose, our mission. Um, and all of these things fit together in terms of our call. So God uses all of those things. So again, I'm, I'm saying all of this in the sense of the long haul because all of these things, um, sometimes we think we're disqualified because we come from a certain background or a certain uh, experience or, you know, we grew up on the streets uh, or we've, we've had this and we think that we're disqualified. But God actually uses all of these things and transforms them and allows us to say, okay, this is part of who I've called you to be and I'll use all of those experiences Right? And then in the midst of that, you know, he creates what I'm calling crucible experiences, these challenging moments, these pressure cooker situations, these, these times when you're misunderstood or you make a mistake, right? all, of, all through your life um, to develop character and maturity. Um, and so what happens, though, is that it's not, it's not just you and God. There's also the picture that we don't have in here is this this whole community, and that's what you were touching on, somebody speaking into your life, other people around you that help you develop and express your gifts. Because gifts are not expressed uh, individually, they're expressed in community. And so we, you know, we can't, the, and also the fruits of the Spirit are expressed in community, right? So it's love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness, um, self-control, there's one more in there, um, Right, so the, all of those are done in relationship, in community with other people. And so the community uh, of God, that God uses, he uses those things to do these things, to express those, to, to form those, to refine those things into our character that then influence how we act in response to God's calling and God's journey that he has in us. And so the character is, is the nature of how we express our call. How, how do we live it out, you know? Are you somebody who uh, draws people to you or chases people away? You know, that's a character issue, right? Um, you know, how effective are you at, at leadership? How effective are you at discipleship? How effective are you at, at kind of creating warm, welcoming, hospitable spaces for people? One more image, and this is, this is from a completely different person. And this is kind of ties in with your, your question, too, is that where does that start? And I think it gets expressed in different places. Um, and this is done by Tony Stoltfus. He's a, he's a Christian uh, author and coach. Um, and he talks about the calling journey. It's the fact that it's not just, it's not just a, a moment in time thing, but there's, there's this development of it. And there are different ways of expressing it. And here he uses uh, Joseph's uh, life to kind of express the different places. And so at the beginning often of our lives, the, there's an expression of our call in, in uh, natural promotion just because we've got the chops, right? We've got the talent, we've got the ability. Often we're thrown into a place where God uses us um, even though we ha he hasn't yet developed the character or the depth or the deep understanding that, that we need to be all that God has called us to be. And so for Joseph, right, he's, he's thrown into this favored son position. Um, and then... Uh, and then has this, this experience where he's sold into slavery. Um, so this natural promotion, we learn how to depend on God. God begins preparing us through the, the different situations in Joseph's life that was, you know, leadership in Pot Potiphar's house, being in jail, um, becoming um, more whole, kind of this idea of 
his jail time really kind of refined his character, kind of gave it all up. Uh, and then God called him into this, this role of leadership in Egypt, released into that, you know, blessed his family, began to see who he really was. You know, what, what was his role? Joseph was, was basically the, the person who, who created this uh, nation of Israel that, was, that went to Egypt. It, he saved his family and his people from famine because he became the, the ruler of, of Egypt. And so this identity and fulfillment of that happened in there. And so he has, um, if you look him up, he has about five or six of these um, diagrams, some of the different biblical characters. So if you look at the calling journey, um, if you can remember Coach 22, that's his website name, coach22.com, I think. So, and then, so there's, there are periods here, and he just throws this in, and, and it, sometimes it's longer, sometimes it's shorter. But there's, there are times where early in our lives we take opportunities to lead. Um, when I was first involved in campus ministry, um, my, the campus director said, who, who in the room can play? It was about a room this size, but this many people said, who, who has ever played the guitar before? I said, I put my hand up. The next week, um, he brought his guitar because I didn't even own a guitar. And he said, okay, um, next week you're leading worship. And I thought, that's, that's kind of, that's just my, there's no, there's no holiness, there's no, not, I didn't know how to, I've never done that before. And so, but I was the worship leader for our campus group for the next three years. Um, I'd never done it before. So just kind of thrown into there, um, God's used, actually got what God used for me in terms of worship leading was worship leading here at Stone and then a number of years at Young Street Mission being on the worship team there. And the, um, the releasing piece was I, I started leading worship, uh, citywide worship events and uh, just began to do that. And now the fulfillment is that I'm training other people, right? So, so that's kind of what, where my life is. And the timeline is different for everybody. Sometimes this happens a little quicker, um, but all of that kind of comes into this whole journey. And the whole point of this is that there are different stages in your call. So as you're in there for the long haul, you're going to have different ways of expressing your call and your ministry. Our sense of, of purpose in life, you know, why are we doing what we're doing, um, trying to identify, I mean, he calls it calling journey. So, you know, what is God calling us to do? And how is that expressed at different stages in our life? Um, and I think there, what you said was, was true as well. And so a lot of the, the other five points kind of relate to some, so you're, you're ahead of me, actually. You're, you're doing the integration, which is exactly what, uh, what we need to be doing with this process, is that, yes, there is this sense of, of as we work in long-term ministry, there are, there's a shift based on, uh, on the stage of our life and sometimes our, our level of competence sometimes, so we, which we will get to. So the next ones are just pretty straightforward. I think part of this process, and the reason I spent some time on, on the calling piece, is that, that that helps give us some vision in terms of, okay, if I'm made this way and God's calling me to do this, um, where, where is that most effectively fulfilled. And so part of that is sometimes in a specific ministry, sometimes it's in, um, uh, in a, a specific job that you have, but sometimes it's 
it's with a group of people that you're in. And sometimes it's not your job. It's just part of the, the work that you're doing. But something that sustains us for a long period of time is that says, what's, what's the vision? What's, what's the thing that's bigger than me that we're doing here? What's, what's the outcome? Um, and it was, it, it was really actually insightful for, for EJ this morning. I don't know how many of, of you heard that because it was right at the beginning. Um, where he was talking about this, this young person that he'd been working with for years who just, he felt like there was no success in their life at all. They kept failing over and over again, and, and it was just like, I feel like I'm only here to cry with them and, and be with them. Um, and so sometimes we don't have, um, uh, sometimes that desperation of the moment clouds the vision of what we're doing. But what I heard really, really clearly um, in there, and that was my experience at Evergreen, is that um, our vision wasn't to say, okay, let's, let's get people fixed, uh, get them saved, uh, get them in stable housing, and then get them off the street. Sometimes our vision was, how do we keep people alive long enough to actually make those decisions? And when I started thinking about vision in that sense of saying, okay, what's my role? My, my role is creating a container where success can happen. Doesn't mean, it's, it's not always to create success, it's to create an environment where people can, um, can stay alive long enough to make the right decision. And, and that's what EJ did in his story. He stayed with that person long enough for them to suddenly say, I'm done. I'm gonna take the next step in my life, giving away their, their needles, their syringes. And how long did that take? That took, I think that story was three to four years long in terms of the interaction with him. Might have been longer, actually. I don't remember exactly when that, that final event happened or that. So part of that is, um, you know, that gives you the why question. Why am I doing this? I'm doing this to create this environment, this context. Uh, we need to name success in different ways. We need to use different terms to say that, you know. So again, when I started saying, I'm here to keep people alive, to rescue them from the destruction of the street long enough for them to make good choices. That created a different way of looking at things. Interestingly enough, when I was working at Evergreen in the midst of the loss and the brokenness that youth had, I saw more people come to know Jesus than I ever did at any church ministry I've been involved with. So um, not just uh, dozens, hundreds, hundreds of, of youth making decisions for Jesus Christ over the time that I was there. And uh, surprising sometimes, especially as I compared notes with staff years after I finished, I would say, you know, what, how many people did you see? And, and people would say, uh, you know, the, the answers just amazed me. So even in the midst of loss, brokenness, discouragement, failure, what we felt was failure, we, saw, we still saw people encountering Jesus. Uh, and seeing hope uh, as they encountered him. Um, and then, how do you get good at that? And part of that is just noticing success, noticing good things, uh, being the, that encouraging person, right? Uh, noticing the fact that, that somebody made a step from, from yesterday to today. Somebody made a good choice today. Um, and actually what happened at Evergreen over those years is we had a number of staff who did that really, really well. EJ mentioned Ruth uh, Ewart, who was the uh, healthcare coordinator at, at Evergreen for many years. She wrote a monthly uh, newsletter to her, her supporters. 
And she would always tell a story of, of a street youth that encountered a difficulty and then made a good choice. And it was one of the most encouraging reads I ever have. I kept all of her newsletters. I still have them in a file. And Ruth was, was the owner person at, at Young Street Mission who refused to take a salary. Why? Because she had, number one, she was really good at these, this new, these newsletters. Number two is that uh, people supported her all around the world. Um, she was a missionary in Africa for years and then came back to Canada and just maintained that level of, of support raising. And so she said, I'm, I'm not being paid by Young Street Mission. I'm being paid by the people who believe in me, pray for me, and support me. And so she did that for 20-plus uh, years at, at Young Street Mission because she knew how to counter blessings. Okay, um, I've talked about this a little bit. Being in a, for the long haul is what's your support system look like? Who's around you? Who's your community? Who's there? Number one, um, you know, that you have to have healthy relationships, but the key person for me in my life was that it, it was my wife. Now, my wife was hardly ever at Young Street Mission, hardly ever at the mission, but she supported me in doing that. Um, and it's interesting that she even said to me at one point, don't tell me any more stories about street kids because I can't take it. So, but she was there all the time, right? She was there saying, I believe in you. I believe in this. Um, and uh, I won't be there with you because I can't take it. But I will support you in whatever way I can. Um, and so that worked for us. Um, for some people, um, they need to do it together, right? So they both need to be in the same place. And we've done that. We, we were both on staff here at Stone at the same time. And, and that worked for us. And we did house church together for years, and it worked. But for this, it was just like she needed to be there uh, supporting me. And I needed to know that, that I had that person in my life. So I say that if you're married, that that person needs to be there. Um, they need to be on your side. They need to be with you. If you're constantly arguing about, you know, how early you have to leave or how late you have to stay in the evening or the fact that you're getting a phone call at 2 o'clock in the morning or any of those things, um, then, I, honestly, I think this relationship is more important. And so what does that look like? How do you work that out? It might look different ways for different people. But I think that, 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 for me, has always been the key relationship that said this works for me. That, that has kept me health, healthy. Um, number one, she prays for me. Number two, she encourages me all the time. And number three, she believes in me. And so I've, I've always felt that all the time. Uh, third one here, friends. I don't have a lot of people that I would call friends, but I've had a group of guys who have been... Uh, who I can say almost anything to. Um, and they've supported me. I've supported them. It started out in a pastoring relationship. They're part of the church, this church, actually. Uh, and then they've, they've been deeper friends. As, and I, we still meet every birthday. So there are four guys. Every birthday we go out. So we're out together about four times a year. Um, and so that, that support network has been really important to me. Good mentors and ministry supervisors. Uh, I separate those, or I mention both of them, those. But number one, I think a mentor is somebody who shares with you their experiences and can understand how you're feeling in that situation. They will also give you a different perspective on it. 
And so it's important to have mentors who have been there before, who have gone before you, find people who are, are there. Sometimes it can be a peer mentor, somebody who's in it with you at the same time. It should be somebody outside of the organization that you're working with, just so that they can be honest and you can be honest, um, so that you're not telling your coworker about how bad your supervisor is, right? So just, just, just saying. However, I think it's important to have a supervisor who, who is able to identify your work, help you grow, correct your mistakes, and give you opportunities for professional development, right? So somebody who knows the job and is supervising you, and that person might be a bit more hierarchical, they, they might actually be your boss, but somebody, if you have a supervisor in your ministry setting that you don't get along with or you're completely on a different page, that makes it really difficult to stay there for the long haul. You need to have a good relationship with that person. Uh, you need to be able to hear criticism, correction from them, right, in, in a way that will help you um, and that the, the, where, you, where that relationship is not harmed, right? So, so you still, I, I believe in, in supervision for ministry. Like I think sometimes we throw pastors into senior roles and they're isolated and they just no, don't have anybody to feed back to them. They don't have nobody who says, who holds them accountable for the role that they're in. And that's what I mean by a supervisor. A mentor comes alongside but doesn't always have the authority to speak into their life. I think everybody has to have somebody in their life that can speak into their life with authority um, just to challenge us in one way or another. So that, that keeps us healthy and, and going strong. Do whatever it takes to develop a prayer team. Uh, if that's, it should be at least two or three people. Ideally, it's, it's a couple of groups of people. What I mean by that, there, are, oh, there may be two or three who you can share everything with. You can say, I'm going through this. I'm having this temptation. I'm having this trial. You know, it's a small group, confidential. You should have, also have a larger group that just, you know, I'm working with this kid. I'm working with Jessica. I'm working with, with whoever, you know, and we need prayer because I don't know what to do now. You know, that can be more general. But, um, and the close prayer team you should be communicating with on a regular basis, a couple of times a month probably. The big prayer team, you can do that once a month, once every other month, send out a prayer email or something, say, pray for me, and they'll do that. Um, then, kind of spiritual director, somebody who, can, who you can talk to, keep you online spiritually. can be a pastor, but we, we have professionals who do that right now. We People who are looking for, um, let, me, let me put it this way, you can, you can get pretty cheap. Tyndale is constantly uh, training and preparing spiritual directors who need hours um, and are willing to meet with you for 10, 20 bucks a meeting or something like that, right? So, so you make use of the, that resource. Uh, some people will do it for free. And then make sure you take care of yourself. This kind of the the professional support. If you need to talk to a counselor, go to them. If you need somebody to help you with your, your nutrition or your health, you know, do that kind of thing. So your support system, the people around you are really important. Uh, the other significant one is self-care. How do you take care of yourself? That, your relational network is part of that, but um, this is Matthew 11 uh, from the message version. Are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Interesting that he says it that way. Come to me, get away with me, you recover your life, and I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. 
I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me, and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. So in case you didn't recognize this, this is the, the passage where it says, don't be unequally, uh, sorry, uh, my burden is light and my yoke is easy. Um, passage. So what are the ryth rhythms of grace for you, right? What does that look like in your life? What restores you? What gives you life? What restores that kind of energy, passion, joy? Uh, if you can identify that clearly, do it. <laughs> do whatever it is that that is and, and do it on a regular basis. Honestly, for me, it's, it's um, I don't need a lot of time. I need to know that there are, are, are windows in my schedule where I can do nothing. It doesn't have to be a full day, although Sabbath, uh, full Sabbath day helps. Um, but I, that's what restores me. That and, and exercise of some kind. It can just be a walk. Uh, if it's basketball, that's even better. If I can go out and just, just do that, that, that's super. I'll go to the gym on a regular basis. That, that's restorative. And for me, a good thing is that uh, a good talk with a good friend is also restorative for me. So... What restores you? Um, these are my 10 hours of self-care. I'm not going to go through each one, but just, just some things to be thinking about in terms of what does it look like to take care of yourself. Um, study, reading. You need, you need an input of life and of new thoughts and of new energy into your life. That comes from Scripture. comes from good books comes from, from uh, appropriate study. Uh, time of reflection. Um, Dewey, the guy who, who designed the Dewey Decibel system, uh, our library systems, said, we don't learn from experience, we learn from reflecting on experience. And so reflecting on experience is like storing things into the hard drive instead of just having it uh, on, on the, the surface. It, it kind of saves it into the file. And so uh, that reflection is really important. We talked a little bit about Sabbath. For me, it's just getting away. I was working with uh, my second time. I actually worked at Young Street Mission twice, once in the, in the 90s and, and then again in the 2000s. The second time was as the staff care director. And um, one of the staff there came up to me and said, you know what, I think I, I'm not going to make it anymore. This person had been there for 17 years. So I think I'm, I'm ready to quit. I said, so wh why now? What's, what's going on? She said, oh, I'm just tired. I'm, I'm restless. I'm, I'm angry at people, and, and things aren't working, and I, I don't like the mission anymore. And, and I said, so why, like I talked to you six months ago, and you weren't feeling this way. What's changed? I said, I don't know what's changed. It's just gotten harder. And I said, what were you doing six months ago that you're not doing now? She said, well, when you talked to me, I'd just come back on a, from a retreat. Uh, and I said, so when's the last time you did a retreat? She said, six months ago. I said, so why don't we try that first? And so she, she booked uh, as soon as she could. It was like actually a couple of weeks in the future. Uh, and then she came back after the retreat, and she said, I want to work here for another 10 years. <laughs> I said, so what does that tell you? She says, it tells me that I have to go on a retreat every three months just to stay health healthy here and happy here. Um, and so that was... Just that identity, and again, that's about, you know, what restores you, what keeps you going, right? We talked about relationships, um, rejuvenation, take care of your body, get enough sleep, eat healthy, eat right, get exercise. Uh, healthy schedule, 
Um, have a schedule, right? You know, put stuff down so that, you know, those things don't surprise you. Uh, keep up to date with little things. Um, there's nothing to me. Okay, I'm, I'm married to somebody who loves, who just is really good at, at keeping laundry stuff. But she goes, visits her sisters. They, li- they all live far away, and so she's gone for two weeks. There's nothing more depressing than having a pile of laundry in your, around. Sorry, it's, it just is. It's, maybe it's just me, but it's like, okay, if you don't know what you're going to wear tomorrow because you've got nothing that's clean, um, it's time to do laundry. And that's a rhythm of a healthy schedule, right? Make sure you take care of that. Um, uh, the other thing I want to say about that is um, money. Make sure that you're not constantly feeling the stress. Uh, at least, you know, I know it's difficult. Uh, I mean, we had staff at Young Street Mission who, who basically paid everything with their visa, and they were always overdrawn, or, or sorry, over, always paying interest. So we did whatever we could to kind of re- remove that. Do whatever it takes to kind of remove consumer debt. Um, that just, it's just a burden, it's more expensive, it, it's, it's stressful, it adds to the thing. Just this rhythm of healthy schedule and keeping up with stuff is... is that, again, I look back on when I was single, I just... I wasn't good at that. Again, I, I live with the best organizer in the world, so it's really helped my life. Uh, play. I don't think we know how to play. Right? What does it look like? So at Young Street Mission, we would take um, probably twice a year, we would take the staff out for a day, a full day, and just said, uh, what do you want to do that's fun? And we would go to the, you know, rock climbing. We would go um, inner tubing down, down the river. We would go to Toronto Island. We would do barbecues. We would do whatever. Just to say, this is the day, and we would use a work day for it. Don't come in on Saturday, that's, you know, off. Use a work day to do it. Uh, do whatever you need, need to do and, and have fun together. And we would also um, do Sabbath together. So we would take a week every year uh, when it was still allowed to do that. We, we actually, uh, the, the employment center that we started, the government doesn't allow you to take days off, which is really strange. But um, we couldn't shut down our, our employment center, and so it was more difficult in the years Later, earlier on, it was easier um, because they said you have to have to operate this every working day. We talked about professional help. Um, we talked about kind of the vision for for this. What are, what are the expectations? Vision for work. But the the side is is that know yourself, know your boundaries, know your limits. What does it look like for you to? Um, wh- wh- when do you get tired? You know, how long can you do that? So. Again, as a manager at Evergreen, I often had meetings, lots, lots of meetings. So I'd have like six meetings in a day, plus kind of reports to do. And so I thought, okay, I've got three reports and six meetings. I should be able to do that in a day. After not being able to do it for, for repeated days in a row, I recognized I, that's too much work for me in a day. I can't do that much. So I, I, I needed to kind of measure that. And so sometimes we overestimate our ability to get stuff done. Just be realistic. You know, it's okay to stop. And that's actually what Sabbath is. You know, sometimes the end, end of the day, you just have to stop. You have to put it all away. Sabbath actually doesn't mean that you, you've gotten everything done and you're taking a rest. 
Sabbath means you've got lots of stuff to do, but you're going to stop working. Right? That's what Sabbath is, is that you stop working because you know that God is more important than your work. You know that your own uh, rest and restoration is more important than the work that you have to do. And that's a way to honor God in your, in your process. Sabbath means not that stuff is done, but that stuff stops. Um, because God's in control, right? So make sure that you take Sabbath and stop and uh, realistic work expectations. And then this, this one, last one, takes us to the last point, and that we'll be done with that, is that um, you need to review once in a while. Um, we had people who were working at Evergreen who I thought, these are the most amazing drop-in workers I've ever seen. I remember one in particular, um, her name was Fern. She, she was working drop-in. She's the best drop-in worker um, I think I've ever seen. And, uh, and because she was so good at it. She liked sitting there. She liked talking with you. She connected with people. Um, she knew what to do. She knew all the resources. She knew who to call. Uh, youth trusted her. Youth went to her first. Um, she had a lot of joy in her work. And she said to me once, because I wanted, because she did it so well, I wanted to promote her into another level. And she said, no, no, I want to do this. And I thought, okay. I used her as an example for all the others. I would say, okay, this is the kind of attitude you have to have. Um, and I thought she would be there longer than me. She lasted three and a half years. Um, and it was just like, it was, it, it, it just kind of suddenly come to the point that said, no, I can't do this anymore. And so she was kind of reviewing her life, her calling, or can I do this? And it was no. And she actually worked for a different organization. She started working for, I think it was Matthew House uh, Refugee Center. Um, and it was a different kind of work. It was a little bit more, uh, less demanding and more um, control over her, her stuff. So this is what happens in our life. And I think this is the whole idea about reimagining yourself. And that's my last point, is that what does it look like to reimagine yourself in the role? Because I think when we're working in high-stress, high-demand environments, we need to rethink what does that look like from time to time. Sometimes it's, okay, I need to specialize. Sometimes it's, it's not being the generalist, it's being... So we've had people who worked in the drop-in for years, and then, then when we were doing some of the other stuff, they said, you know what, I really like this employment thing. And so they would shift from drop-in work, where they would sit and work in, in the drop-in context and start working in the... In the employment center. And so they would do, be working with the same kids, but working specifically on things like resumes and job preparedness and, and uh, coaching them around interviewing and stuff like that. And what happened is that, that as they specialized, they, they found more life and energy in that process. So sometimes you have to reevaluate, re-envision your role and become specialized. The other way to do that is to become, um, to move more into leadership to say, okay, what does it look like? Okay, I've been doing the floor work. I've been doing the frontline work. What does it look like to kind of construct this in a way that's, that would work better? I know what I felt like was when I was working frontline. How do I help others do that better? And so they, they would become a supervisor of the drop-in or something like that. And so that would give them longevity in that role. They'd still be effective, and they'd, then they share their effectiveness with other people, right? And so they go further. So that's what I mean by re-envisioning your role. To those who run organizations, um, I recognize that that's difficult. 
So one, one of my challenges at Young Street Mission is that I had somebody who was the supervisor. And so I would have to say, you know, you can't have that role because somebody else is doing that. How do I help you move into that role somewhere else? Often they would work with the same population, still working with street youth, but then would find this, this new uh, expression of life in a different organization. And so I'd, I'd try to help them uh, be successful in that process. So that re-envisioning, re-evaluating uh, process, I think, is one of the key things that you want to do as you move forward. Well, that brings to an end season one of Sidewalk Skyline podcast. It's been quite a journey, but we're not uh, going to be gone for long. We're coming back with season two. Look for the premiere episode on January 1st, 2021. We'll have new theme music. And our very first guest on season two is going to be Mark Griffin. Mark is a uh, pastor familiar to many Canadians and uh, currently is working with the organization known as Christians Against Poverty. You might think Christians are always known by what they're against rather than what they're for. Well, there is one thing that we are against and that is poverty. And uh, so Mark and I have a, an intriguing conversation about uh, ministry life, about issues around money and uh, the effects of poverty in the city. And, and I think that uh, you'll find uh, his story and uh, his insights to be refreshing. So join us again. And uh, also want to remind you that we have a Facebook page, Sidewalk Skyline Podcast, and there's still time to put in your vote. Uh, by the end of, Jan of December, we will have a final count on what were the most popular episodes of season one. If you can go to our Facebook page, and uh, there's a post there that uh, lists all of the episodes from 2020 and uh, rank them in what you think are the top three most listened to episodes. If you happen to get it right, I'm going to send you a $25 gift card for the coffee of your choice uh, or a $25 gift card of your choice if, it's, if you're not a coffee drinker. And if you happen to guess the three episodes in sequence of most listened to, second most listened to, third most listened to, I'll double that. Uh, I'll make it a $50 gift card. So um, go do that now, would you? And if you haven't already, uh, on the podcast platform that you listen, uh, would you go and uh, make sure that you subscribe and, and you like, rate the podcast, and uh, we'll appreciate that and, and uh, just continue to watch as our uh, listenership grows through 2021. God bless you, and uh, we're in the Lord's hands and until he returns. I'm Kevin Rogers, and you've been listening to Sidewalk Skyline Podcast.